Now, are you a compulsive complainer? You know, uh, the sort of people who complain about everything. Uh, One of those people who, uh, you know, rings up uh, the Amazon complaints department. In fact, you have the Amazon complaints department on speed dial or the email equivalent. Uh, I was reading a couple of weeks ago about um, uh, a woman who had been to a hotel in Spain and uh, she had uh, put in a complaint to the hotel. Does anyone know what the complaint was about? Did anyone read that story? She complained that there were too many Spaniards in the Spanish hotel. (laughs) That is a compulsive complainer. Now, probably most of us have had that experience, haven't we, of ringing up the complaints department of some company or other. And I think even within my lifetime, it's got a little bit better than it used to be. You know, in the olden days, you used to get people who were quite rude uh, on the end of the phone. They obviously didn't want to listen. They obviously didn't want to help. And it would just end with, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. Is there anything else I can help you with? It's always that at the end, isn't it? But I must admit, I do feel sorry for people who work in complaints departments. I mean, imagine being there, having people complaining to you all day long, but with no power to actually do anything really to help. It must be a very hard job. Tim Keller, in his recent book on the Psalms, calls God the ultimate complaints department. The complaints department that everyone should want. Because God actually listens to our complaints. And unlike our earthly complaints department, he can actually do something about our complaints. And we see here in this psalm that David is complaining, isn't he? Complaining to God. Have a look again at verses 1 and 2. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked. We can see here that David's uh, having a uh, a complaint to God, but he's not having a moan. He's not just moaning about things that don't need moaning about. He's actually bringing his concerns, his worries before God. David is under attack in this psalm. And the attack is, is more verbal and physical in nature, but it could still cost David everything. We don't know much about the context of the psalm. You'll see at the top it just says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. But we know that David is facing plots. He's facing intrigue, uh, uh, problems from his enemies. These men are bent on bringing him down. So what he prays for through this psalm, really, this psalm is a prayer for protection. He prays for God to preserve him in the face of these attacks. He prays for God to hide him safely away. Now, David is no coward. We know that from his life. He took on Goliath, didn't he? He's not a coward. But he knows that he's in trouble if God doesn't step in. He knows he needs God's help. He knows he needs God's protection. And so this psalm is him asking God for it. He's asking God for protection. He's asking God to look out for him. And he knows that God will do that. But he doesn't presume on God, does he? He doesn't take God for granted. And he will certainly praise God when his prayers are answered at the end of the psalm, won't he? God will be doubly glorified then as not only the rescuer of David, but the answerer of his prayers. So can I say as we start, if we think about prayer, don't rob God by not praying. Because God actually gets glory by answering our prayers, as well as just rescuing us from our problems. God wants us to talk to him. He wants us to pray to him in times of trouble. He wants us to bring our complaints to him. So what is David's complaint? Well, we see that in verses uh, 3 to 6, David and his enemies. And first of all, we see the attack uh, attack of the enemy. Have a look at verses 3 and 4. 
So those evildoers who whet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. The enemy are attacking him. I think this is David really speaking about himself in the third person again, as we've seen all the way through this section in the Psalms. Their weapon of choice, their words. And words can be incredibly powerful, can't they? Words can destroy. If you don't believe me, read the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 18, 21. You'll see it on the back of your notice sheets. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So death and life are within the power of the tongue. If you don't believe me, read the book of James. James 3, verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's how powerful the tongue is. That's how powerful our words are. I know of a situation in another church that I was involved in many years ago where somebody said something about someone else's son and they didn't speak for 20 years. Just over words that have been spoken. Words can be incredibly powerful. Words can be incredibly damaging. And these words here seem to be in the form of plots and accusations against David. They're trying to use words to bring him down. So it's not so much name-calling as you might get, but lies aimed to discredit David and destroy him. And we all know the power of accusations, don't we? How many teachers, ministers, politicians have been brought down by the mere accusation of wrongdoing? More often than not, we find out that was right, don't we? But sometimes we find out that it's actually been a rival or some scheme to try and bring them down. Well, we don't know when this was written. As I say, we don't have much context to the psalm. If it's later in David's life, then he might have left himself open to some accusations, mightn't he? He was a former adulterer, a former schemer, a murderer. He committed adultery, Bathsheba, and then plotted the demise of her husband. He repented of that, but I I wonder if the whispers went on about David. You know, this David, he, he says one thing, but he does another thing. He's a hypocrite. Once a cheater, always a cheater. David doesn't care about his soldiers. What did he do to Uriah? David just takes whatever he wants. I wonder if those things carried on and went through his life with him. But here David states that he's blameless. Do you see that in verse 4? Shooting from ambush at the blameless. Perhaps this is speaking about the accusations that are bringing about him. Just specifically those things. Perhaps it's a broader statement that his sins are forgiven and that he's now seen as blameless by God. But even if we take it as that second one, we know from David's character, don't we, that he wouldn't be pleading his innocence in the face of his accusers if he wasn't actually innocent of what they were accusing him of. He is innocent of what they're doing. They're just trying to bring him down. They're lying about him. The words there are tools, are weapons to bring him down. Do you see, he compares them to arrows in verse 3, and swords, the weapons of war, those designed to hurt and destroy. Well, are things any different today? Well, no, there's still a war of words, aren't there? They're still used as weapons against believers. We read in the media now all sorts of words associated with Bible-believing Christians, don't we? Extremists, fundamentalists, indoctrination, brainwashing, homophobic, sexist, misogynistic. 
They're only words, but they hurt, don't they? Because we know that they're not true. They're only words, but they seem to stick, don't they? They work to discredit the gospel with our friends and our family, our colleagues and our neighbours. How can you possibly be an evangelical? They're a bunch of intolerant extremists, aren't they? There's no real proof there, no real debate. Just words and accusations. And they seem to stick, don't they? Well, David knew that experience. He knew how hard that experience was. Think about it. David was a man of war, wasn't he? He'd probably known arrows piercing. He'd probably known swords swung at him. But yet he can compare these words to those weapons of war. He can say that they're almost the same as those arrows that hit me, that sword that stabbed me. It feels the same. So he's saying these things are are there to hurt him, to damage him. And they hurt us too, don't they? But our friends are not the enemy. But the system they belong to is the powers and principalities of this world, of this age. What's their agenda? Well, it's to blind the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the glory of the truth of the gospel. That's our world working against the gospel. So each week, the newspapers, the blogs, the magazines churn out the same thing, don't they? The same rubbish. The church is dying. There's no such person as Jesus. Christians are deluded at best and sinister at worst. But we shouldn't be surprised, should we? Jesus told us exactly this thing would happen. Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Again, it's on the back of your notice sheet. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, of Beelzebul, sorry, how much more will they malign those of his household? You see, the world, when Jesus came into it, thought that he was mad or bad, didn't they? It shouldn't surprise us then that the world thinks that we're pretty much the same. You know, that we're either crazy for believing the gospel or that there's something suspicious going on. Now, we don't know the specific things that they were saying about David, but we do know that they were plotting his downfall. We do know they were trying to hurt him, and people still do the same to us. And just like in those days, they think that they can get away with it. So we see the arrogance of the enemy. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search. For the inward uh, mind and heart of a man are deep. We see here, and we've already seen in verse 4, that they're not afraid, are they, these people who are doing this? Not afraid of David, not afraid of God. Why? Well, they think that nobody can see what they're doing. They think that their plans are too deep and too hidden to be found out. They think they're being really clever by plotting against David in this way. After all, it's not as if David can read minds, is it? It's not as though David can have spies everywhere to work out what they're doing. They think they're much smarter than this clever, uh, too clever to be tricked by this overgrown country bumpkin shepherd boy who somehow ended up in a high position. I mean, who's really going to stop them? Who's clever enough to thwart their plan that they're doing in secret? 
as they search for injustice, as they search to bring David down. You can just imagine their thoughts sort of running that way, can't you? And we can see this in opposition to the gospel as well. The assumption that somehow Christians are mentally deficient somehow. I remember being challenged at high school. So I became a Christian when I was 12, so I went through high school uh, as a Christian. I remember someone specific saying to me, how can you possibly be a Christian when you're so good at science? <laughs> As though this sort of something, how can you be intelligent about this and, and still be a Christian? Every few years you get a, a survey in the newspaper that looks at whether faith is linked to IQ. I don't know if you've seen those ones. And every time the papers come out shocked that there seems to be no link between IQ and faith. As though that somehow there should be you know, a link between low IQ and, and, and faith. Think about even the agenda of even doing such an experiment. The sort of assumption that there would be something there. A lot of people assume that, you know, Christians just aren't that clever. They're just a bit naive and need some sort of emotional crutch. But can you see how arrogant that position is? You know, oh, we would never be hoodwinked by that. We would never believe that. Or if you are clever, well, you must have some sort of other agenda. That you're some sort of cult or brainwashers. And don't even pause for a second to think whether they might have been brainwashed. Whether they might have been hoodwinked into believing something that's not true. I read this week that Richard Dawkins is going to write a children's book uh, to convince them to be atheists. And he's insisted, this was on, on Twitter, you can read it if you go on. He's insisted that it's not indoctrination, uh, as he writes this to children. And when asked why it wasn't indoctrination, he replied that this book will encourage children to think. As though thinking, for one, will automatically lead to them being an atheist, but secondly, as though Christianity doesn't encourage you to think, doesn't involve your brain. There's an arrogance to it, even as they seek to bring Christians down and bring Christianity down in our world. And just as in David's case, they think that there's no one there watching them. They think that nobody's listening. They think that there's no one to call them to account. They think they're just really clever and that they will bring it down all by themselves. In David's case, they thought that David was alone and vulnerable. But they're wrong. They're very wrong. And we see that in our uh, third point. God and mankind, verses 7 to 9. Let me just read you 7 and 8 first. But God shoots his arrows at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see will wag their heads. Do you see here that the tables are turned quite dramatically here? In a flip round of verses 3 and 4, it uses the same sort of language with them, uh, with their arrows and doing things. Suddenly now, it's flipping round. They are suddenly facing these arrows. Their own tongues are suddenly turned against them. They are the ones that people look at and laugh and scorn. They've gone from secret plotters to public losers. And who's behind this dramatic turn of events? God. God has brought them down. God has brought these conniving men to ruin. Because actually, he was watching. He was listening. And now it's payback time. This is what the Bible calls justice. They get what they deserve. Their plots have been revealed. Their plans have come back to bite them. 
It's a bit like Haman in the book of Esther, if you know that story, who built gallows to hang somebody that he didn't like. But in in the end, at the end of the book, instead, he ends up hung on his own gallows. That's the sort of imagery that we've got here. They got what's coming to them. God has intervened and vindicated David. Because they were right, if you look at the second half of verse 6, again, the inward thoughts, uh, sorry, the inward mind and the heart of a man are deep. That is true. They were right. They were clever. They knew that. It may have been impossible or near impossible for David to thwart their plan. But David was not alone. God was with David. God was fighting for David. And God could read their thoughts and look into their hearts and see their minds. So when God is on your side, you have ultimately nothing to fear. Even the enemy's arrows are turned back on themselves. <coughs> Even their most secret plans. <coughs> excuse me. Even their most secret plans are wide open to him. God, the all-seeing, all-hearing judge, has brought about justice. He has vindicated the innocent and he has judged the guilty. And do you see, the world gets to hear about it. Have a look at verse 9. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. You see, the tale is told. And this serves as a warning to those around. God will not let you get away with it. Justice will be done. Whatever it is, however secret you think it is, God knows what you've done. God even knows your thoughts, the last details of your life, your deeds, your words, your motives. He saw them, he heard them, and he will judge them. Everything that is hidden will be revealed. Jesus said much the same himself in Luke 12, 2 and 3. He says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So really, we have two options, don't we? We run to God for refuge, or we run away from God and face his justice. It's not like God's going to add any extra charges to what we've done or make up things. He doesn't need to. He'll just reveal what we've done. And if we run away from him, we'll never run far enough, will we? He sees all. He hears all. There is no escape from God. We will face the justice we deserve. And you might think, I, I know sometimes I, I start thinking, well, there's some sort of nobleness to that, isn't there? You've met friends who sort of say, well, if I've done something, I'll just face the consequences. But there's nothing noble about refusing legitimate aid when it's offered. God offers us a way out of this. But it's not like God is cheating God found a way to both satisfy his justice and save his people. He offers us a way out. And when we run away and just think we'll face it on our own, it's not noble. Actually, it's stubborn, isn't it? And that's part of our problem in the first place, that we stubbornly refuse God. And it's not just stubborn to to run away from God, it's futile. Like a child trying to close their eyes to disappear. Our boys were just, a, just just past that stage, you know, where they think they can't, you can't see them if they just put their hands over their eyes. Like playing hide and seek with a toddler. 
You ever tried that? If you don't find them in a couple of minutes, they shout and ask you where you are. We cannot hide ourselves from God. It's a tactic as old as Adam and Eve, isn't it? Hiding yourself from God, but it doesn't work. So we can't run away from God. Don't face his justice by yourself. Instead, we can run to God for our refuge. He can be that refuge, that safe place for us that we've been seeing all the way through this section of the Psalms. He can do that because he's dealt with his justice on the cross. A true and blameless one took his justice, a death he didn't deserve. If you like, Jesus pled guilty for us, even though we are the guilty ones. He knew the plots of men against him. God can see everything, can't he? But Jesus let those happen to himself, that he might become the safe place for us, where his own wrath has already burned. So if we run to him for refuge, he can be that refuge because of Christ. Then that all-seeing, all-knowing God that sounded quite terrifying before becomes a comfort to us. You know that quote we had before about the servant not being greater than his master if if they persecuted you, uh, sorry, persecuted me, they'll persecute you. This is how it goes on, Matthew 10, 26, 27. So, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I, te- what, you, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. It's sort of similar to that quote, quote in Luke, isn't it, now? But instead of warning us about hypocrisy, it comforts us now about a God who knows and sees those plots against us. God is not unaware of opposition to his son and his church in the world. And one day all will be revealed. The whole world will see in full what the people around David saw in part. That there is a God who works for justice in this world. They will tell each other what God has done. They will tell of his justice before that final day of judgment. They'll warn others, they'll ponder what God has done and beware and turn to him for refuge. So lastly there is the command isn't there? For you and me. Verse 10. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. The last thing we're told in light of all that we've seen is to rejoice in our refuge. David writes that in light of all this that we've seen that God rescues the righteous, that God sees the plots of the wicked, that he turns them back on himself. That we should rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. The parallel to this is uh, that verse that says the upright in heart should exult. It's a call for believers to rejoice and find refuge in the Lord. That first word rejoice is sormach. It literally means to brighten up. It's the same word that's used in Ecclesiastes 8.15. You know, they eat, drink and be merry. That's the same word. It just sounds a little bit strange if you put it in other places. We're to be brightened up in God. We're to be merry because of what God has done. The faithful, loving God who has bound himself for his people. Who has uh, bound himself to his people, sorry. Who has brought about this rescue for his people. The second word for rejoicing there is halal. Which is where we get our word hallelujah from. It's not related to halal food. I did check that. Uh, But it originally meant to shine, to to cast light on. It's translated elsewhere, praise, boast, glory. Why are we to rejoice or praise or glory or exult? 
Well, because we've what we've seen about the glorious Lord in this psalm. A God of justice, a rescuer of the innocent, a hearer of our complaints, an answerer of our prayers, a refuge for the righteous. You see, there's lots to complain about in our world, isn't there? But not with God. Whatever our circumstances, however bleak, however low, and we do have low times, don't we, as believers, however low, we still have cause to rejoice in our refuge, even in the face of trials, even in the face of difficulties like David faced. Now, God does not promise us a David experience in this life where everything is turned on its head. Good men will be brought down by rumours. Scoundrels will carry on regardless. But what we need to remember when those things happen is that the match is not yet over. The book is not yet finished. This is only half time, if you like, this, this life. This is only the middle of the book before the great resolution at the end. But there are still some hints in this world of that end that's coming, isn't there? Every time God turns the tables, it's a reminder to the world of what is coming, isn't it? And mankind needs to look and take note. But it does mean that we can even rejoice in the midst of those difficult circumstances, even when the tables aren't turned. But our rejoicing is by faith. We look ahead to what is coming, when there will be justice, when the tables will be turned. Us knowing what comes at the end of the book, us knowing what the full-time score is. And because of that ending, we can rejoice. Because we still have the same God, haven't we? We can know the God that we have who will bring this about, the God of justice, the rescuer of the innocent, the hearer of our complaints, the answerer of our prayers, the refuge for the righteous. We can know that God now. We can know that security now and find refuge in him. And know that ultimately when the match is over, when the book is finished, nothing can harm us. And do you know the amazing thing? There'll be no complaints department in heaven. Sorry, that will put probably some people out of business, won't it? But, but until then, let's pour our complaints out to him, knowing that he will hear and he will answer and he will bring us safely to glory and bring justice to our needy world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are a God of justice. Father, thank you that you hear and see everything. And Father, if we're here this morning and we don't know you, Father, pray that that would cause us to turn to you this morning and have our sins forgiven, uh, Father, before it's too late. Father, we pray for those of us who do know you, we pray that that would be a comfort to us. Father, you know what we're going through. You can see what's happening. You know the difficulties we face. And you are there and you hear our complaints. You hear our cries and you listen. And Father, we know that ultimately you will act. So, Father, give us faith, help us looking to the end, looking to the end of the book, looking to the end of the match, Father, when uh, the score is, is there, is final, Father, when there is the glory of heaven with no complaints at all. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.